Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Fran Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen Reports in, uh, in the United States. Just get involved in their, um, subscribe to their daily feed. It's really fascinating to find out what, uh, what Americans are saying, particularly now with the new president. Fran, 83% of Americans think Donald Trump is likely to reverse or abolish much of what was put in place by Barack Obama. What's yeah, the... Most of what Obama put in place. Right. How's... Yeah, and I, I think he will. I mean, I mean, we also asked people last week, what was, you know, what rate Obama's greatest hits, if you will. Of course, Obamacare was at the top of the list, and then you had other things like the Iran deal, his uh, his policies toward the illegal immigration and refugees, uh, things like that, and uh, his social and racial policies. And uh, but Obamacare was head and shoulders above everything else, and uh, you know Trump's going to take that take that out. I mean, he's going to change it very dramatically. Uh, he's obviously going to he's very serious about um, illegal immigration. Uh, I was very struck in his inaugural his inaugural address was very workmanlike. Uh, but he he just he pounded away at the very issues that he ran on, uh, and he basically said to the American public, "Hey, hold me accountable. I'm going to do this. You're the boss." Uh, no no flighty rhetoric, uh, but after having listened to years of flighty rhetoric, I, you know it was kind of nice to hear a guy with who's basically saying, "Let's roll up our sleeves and get to work." Yeah, I mean, I listened to it and I thought, what else would he say? I heard the right. all of the negative commentary afterwards, and I said, it makes absolute sense what he said. This is what he campaigned on. He stood up and he said, this is what we're going to do. And from now on, from today on, the government is going to belong to the people of the United States, not these guys sitting behind me. Right. Which I thought was very that was a very powerful statement, because it was addressed both to the Republicans and the Democrats. Now. Um, uh, Will Trump's vision, the question, one other question you asked was, will Trump's vision of America succeed where Obama's did not? What was the response to that? Well, actually, that was, I just posited that in a commentary. I'm saying that's what we're going to see in the next four years. Okay. Um, So it's, and that's going to be the real test. I mean, he's going to run into, I mean, some of the biggest opposition he's going to face is within his own party, as you know. Right. Uh, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, characters like that. Marco Rubio, who's trying to shine his star a little brighter. Um, so he's going to run into resistance from some of those guys, not just the Democrats. Uh, and he's made it very clear, as he made in that speech, that he's going right at the establishment in Washington. What should we look for in this country? Yesterday, um, Mr. Trump and our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had a conversation. Apparently they talked about trade. They also talked about security. But uh, Donald Trump has said in the past, said to a Canadian magazine, that um, that Justin Trudeau is the worst president Canada's ever had, clearly as prime minister. But So he doesn't have a great deal of affection for Trudeau. What should we expect in, uh, in the relationship that might develop or not develop? Well, I think, look, I think Trump is a realist. Uh, he's, he's, he's a negotiator. He's, he's obviously, his business success indicates that. So I think he's, he has served notice. People around the world know that there's a, a new tough sheriff in town. But I think at the end of the day, Trump wants to accomplish things. I mean, his agenda couldn't be any simpler. Jobs in America, trade that's benefit, more beneficial to our country, that kind of thing. Um, but, for example, Keystone Pipeline, I, I imagine that thing's going to sail right through. Uh, with, that'll be good for Canada. Uh, so it's, you know, I think um, Trump is going to want to start racking up some accomplishments. He's going he's to cut through the BS. 
uh, and that's what people really can measure it by. So, I mean, he's not out. He has no harbors, no animosity toward Canada, nor does it do the American people. He just wants to do what's best for the U.S. Will he be able to do his job, Fran, given the fact that he's fighting the media, he's fighting the people in Hollywood who will continue to create these videos that people will watch if for no other reason than it's kind of interesting and fun in a way, in a sad way. But he's also fighting the the Democratic Party. He's fighting others in, in his own party. He's got four years ago. Is there going to be enough? Uh, does he have enough capital to be able to drive through his agenda, or is he going to be hitting too many large speed bumps along the way? Well, I think it really, I think it really depends on what he can accomplish. Uh, his voters obviously are, you know, or believe me, we are so relieved uh, there are some. There are people in this country who are so relieved to see Obama's helicopter fly out of town. Uh, I mean, there's no question this is a divided nation. I mean, half the people were sorry to see him go. The other half couldn't wait for the guy to get out the door. Uh, so those people are they're fully vested in Trump. And if I mean, if he continues, if the market stock market keeps going up, if companies keep planning more jobs in this country, uh, if he starts turning some of these things around, I think he'll have. I think his support will grow from there. Uh, right now, he's pretty much, uh, you know, it's an open book. You know what he says he's going to do, but now he's got to do something. We all have about a minute here. Our first conversation, the first conversation you and I had, would have been just about a year ago. I think it was early February that we first talked on the air. And you've been with us so many times, and you've given us so much of your time. If we were to go back to those very early days in the primaries, where Donald Trump was an afterthought, a joke. I played what Bill O'Reilly put together, uh, and that was network anchors and network guests and pundits laughing and giggling at the notion of Donald Trump running for the presidency on the first days after he announced. If we were to look back to those days, are you at all surprised, Fran, occasionally at how things eventually did play out and did develop, considering everything that went on in between? You know, ultimately not. I think looking back on it now, it makes more sense than it might have made to me a year ago. Um, I, I think I said this on your show before. I remember when I came to Washington in 1980, and everybody I ran into in Washington was saying, in the spring 1980, was saying, oh, Carter was going to kill Reagan. And having just come from America, where I'd, you know, where I'd worked, out in America, I was like, mm, I don't think so. I think this guy Reagan's going to do pretty well. And everybody looked at me like I was an idiot. So I think the conventional wisdom, the pundit class, the political class was just dead wrong. It just shows you how out of touch they really are. Yeah. I've been saying Donald Trump was going to win for a long time, a long time, but you were saying it before I said it. So it's well, always... Well, it was our polls, Roy. It was in the polls. Yep. Well, I mean, what, that, that's... You know, that's the thing. I mean, from day one, we were showing him competitive with Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your polls turned out to be accurate, and the others were just dreamers. Right. Well, it... it followed their storyline. Exactly. Even even on November the 8th, they were saying that Hillary Clinton had an 85% chance of winning and Trump a 15% chance winning. That was on November the 8th they were saying that. Right, right. And it's just the same thing they're saying about his agenda. They're saying his agenda is a divisive, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to be surprised. When Americans start taking home more money, when unemployment starts going down, when things like that start happening, when America starts kind of reclaiming itself... Uh, I think you're going to hear some people changing their tunes. Yeah, don't remember your, or don't forget your friends north to the north. All right. <laughs> never, never. Okay. I told you I have family up there in Ottawa, so no, 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 not at all. All right, Fran. Good talking to you again. Thank you so much. 
My pleasure, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Brian Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen Reports in uh, in the United States. Just get involved in their, um, subscribe to their daily feed. It's really fascinating to find out what uh, what Americans are saying, particularly now with the new president. Fran, 83% of Americans think Donald Trump is likely to reverse or abolish much of what was put in place by Barack Obama. What's yeah, the Most of what Obama put in place. Right. How's, yeah, and I, I think he will. I mean, I mean, we also asked people uh, last week, what was, you know, what rate Obama's greatest hits, if you will. Of course, Obamacare was at the top of the list, and then you had other things like the Iran deal, his uh, his policies toward the illegal immigration and refugees, uh, things like that, and uh, his social and racial policies. And uh, but Obamacare was head and shoulders above everything else, and uh, you know Trump's going to take that take that out. I mean, he's going to change it very dramatically. Uh, he's obviously going to. He's very serious about um, illegal immigration. Uh, I was very struck in his inaugural. His inaugural address was very workmanlike, uh, but he he just he pounded away at the very issues that he ran on, uh, and he basically said to the American public, "Hey, hold me accountable. I'm going to do this. You're the boss." Uh, no no flighty rhetoric, uh, but after having listened to years of flighty rhetoric, I, you know it was kind of nice to hear a guy with who's basically saying. Let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. Yeah, I mean, I listened to it, and I thought, what else would he say? I heard the, right. all of the negative commentary afterwards, and I said, it makes absolute sense what he said. This is what he campaigned on. He stood up and he said, this is what we're going to do. And from now on, from today on, the government is going to belong to the people of the United States, not these guys sitting behind me. Right, which I thought was very, that was a very powerful statement, because it was addressed both to the Republicans and the Democrats. Now, um... Uh, will Trump's vision, the question, one other question you asked was, will Trump's vision of America succeed where Obama's did not? What was the response to that? Well, actually, that was, I just posited that in a commentary. I'm saying that's what we're going to see in the next four years. Okay. Um, so it's, and that's going to be the real test. I mean, he's going to run into, I mean, some of the biggest opposition he's going to face is within his own party, as you know. Right. Uh, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, characters like that, Marco Rubio, who's trying to shine his star a little brighter. Um, so he's going to run into resistance from some of those guys, not just the Democrats. Uh, and he's made it very clear, as he made in that speech, that he's going right at the establishment in Washington. What should we look for in this country? Yesterday, um, Mr. Trump and our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had a conversation. Apparently they talked about trade. They also talked about security. But uh, Donald Trump has said in the past, said to a Canadian magazine, that um, that Justin Trudeau is the worst president Canada's ever had, clearly as prime minister. But So he doesn't have a great deal of affection for Trudeau. What should we expect in, uh, in the relationship that might develop or not develop? Well, I think, look, I think Trump is a realist. Uh, he's, he's, he's a negotiator. He's, he's obviously, his business success indicates that. So I think he's, he has served notice. People around the world know that there's a, a new tough sheriff in town. But I think at the end of the day, Trump wants to accomplish things. I mean, his agenda couldn't be any simpler. Jobs in America, trade that's benefit, more beneficial to our country, that kind of thing. Um, but, for example, Keystone Pipeline, I, I imagine that thing's going to sail right through. Uh, that'll be good for Canada. Uh, so it's, you know, I think um, Trump is going to want to start racking up some accomplishments. He's going to, he's going to cut through the BS. Uh, and that's what people really can measure it by. So, I mean, he's not out 
he has no harbors no animosity toward Canada, nor does do the American people. He just wants to do what's best for the U.S. Will he be able to do his job, Fran, given the fact that he's fighting the media, he's fighting the people in Hollywood who will continue to create these videos that people will watch if for no other reason than it's kind of interesting and fun in a way, in a sad way. But he's also fighting the the Democratic Party. He's fighting others in, in his own party. He's got four years ago. Is there going to be enough? Uh, does he have enough capital to be able to drive through his agenda, or is he going to be hitting too many large speed bumps along the way? Well, I think it really, I think it really depends on what he can accomplish. Uh, his voters obviously are, you know, or believe me, we are so relieved uh, there are some. There are people in this country who are so relieved to see Obama's helicopter fly out of town. Uh, I mean, there's no question this is a divided nation. I mean, half the people were sorry to see him go. The other half couldn't wait for the guy to get out the door. Uh, so those people are they're fully vested in Trump. And if I mean, if he continues, if the market stock market keeps going up, if companies keep planning more jobs in this country, uh, if he starts turning some of these things around, I think he'll have. I think his support will grow from there. Uh, right now, he's pretty much, uh, you know, it's an open book. You know what he says he's going to do, but now he's got to do something. We all have about a minute here. Our first conversation, the first conversation you and I had, would have been just about a year ago. I think it was early February that we first talked on the air. And you've been with us so many times, and you've given us so much of your time. If we were to go back to those very early days in the primaries, where Donald Trump was an afterthought, a joke. I played what Bill O'Reilly put together, uh, and that was network anchors and network guests and pundits laughing and giggling at the notion of Donald Trump running for the presidency on the first days after he announced. If we were to look back to those days, are you at all surprised, Fran, occasionally at how things eventually did play out and did develop, considering everything that went on in between? You know, ultimately not. I think looking back on it now, it makes more sense than it might have made to me a year ago. Um, I, I think I said this on your show before. I remember when I came to Washington in 1980, and everybody I ran into in Washington was saying, in the spring 1980, was saying, oh, Carter was going to kill Reagan. And having just come from America, where I'd, you know, where I'd worked, out in America, I was like, mm, I don't think so. I think this guy Reagan's going to do pretty well. And everybody looked at me like I was an idiot. So I think the conventional wisdom, the pundit class, the political class was just dead wrong. It just shows you how out of touch they really are. Yeah. I've been saying Donald Trump was going to win for a long time, a long time. But you were saying it before I said it. So it's well, always... Well, it was our polls, Roy. It was in the polls. Yep. Well, I mean, what, that, that's... You know, that's the thing. I mean, from day one, we were showing him competitive with Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your polls turned out to be accurate, and the others were just dreamers. Right. Well, it... it followed their storyline. Exactly. Even even on November the 8th, they were saying that Hillary Clinton had an 85% chance of winning and Trump a 15% chance winning. That was on November the 8th they were saying that. Right, right. And it's just the same thing they're saying about his agenda. They're saying his agenda is a divisive, et cetera, et cetera. They're going to be surprised. When Americans start taking home more money, when unemployment starts going down, when things like that start happening, when America starts kind of reclaiming itself... Uh, I think you're going to hear some people changing their tunes. Yeah, don't remember your, or don't forget your friends north to the north. All right. <laughs> never, never. Okay. I told you I have family up there in Ottawa, so no, 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 not at all. All right, Fran. Good talking to you again. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Roy. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML.
So you've heard parts one and part two of uh, my interview with Kevin O'Leary. I want to say to you, by the way, he's exactly the same way off the air that he is on the air. Exactly the same way. Very little time for small talk. Very little time in, in the way for just chatter. Just gets right to the point. So one of the areas where Kevin O'Leary has run into criticism in this country has centered around what he's had to say about Canada's military and Canada's warriors. I talked to him about that. Two of your Conservative Party leadership rivals, Michael Chong and Aaron O'Toole, have attacked you, with Michael Chong accusing you of an egregious attack on Canada's military after you reportedly said Canadians are known as international peacekeepers and that there's nothing proud about being a warrior. Listeners also sent emails challenging you on that statement. What level of commitment do you have to Canada's fighting men and women who you may well have to send into harm's way if you become prime minister? First of all, I'm proud of our warriors and I'm proud of our peacekeepers because I actually lived watching them work in Cyprus in the late 60s where they did remarkable work. Very few countries enjoy the brand we have as warriors and peacekeepers. However, I want your listeners to know something. Last week I went to work on the file of military spending. It's the largest variable budget we have. This is important for the men and women in the military. We spent $20 billion a year maintaining the military and $5 billion in capital expenditures. We should be very concerned that they get the most efficient equipment, the best deals possible, and the money is spent the right way to support them. I found situations like this because I'm a manager. This is what I do. We have the largest border on Earth. We patrol it using C-140s at a cost of 38500 an hour. We're one of the only G7 countries that does not have a drone program. We could be operating drones for as little as $1,200 an hour and save $3 billion a year that could be put forward to new and modernized equipment military needs. We have a NATO commitment of 2% of GDP. We're only giving 0.9 because the country's broken. It's not growing. We can't afford it. That's Trudeau's fault. We need to have a very strong military with incredible, incredible efficiency in how that money's spent. Here's another example. The Liberals are contemplating buying F-18s. The cost of those are about 100 million U.S. apiece. But what Canadians don't know is that to maintain that aircraft for, let's say, 27 years, you would spend another 300 million. They are not guaranteeing me as a taxpayer that that money stays in Canada in maintenance. It's all going to Dallas-Fort Worth. What moron is signing that contract? I would never allow that, ever. I'm going to get my hands dirty in these files. There's so much mediocrity in how this is done. Our military deserves way better than that. Those jobs are very valuable. Engineering, maintenance on highly sophisticated aircrafts, that should be done in Canada by Canadian engineers. Instead, it's all being done in the U.S. Who signed that contract? Have him stand in front of me at my desk. He will not be employed anymore. Coal-fired energy plants. Ontario has taken them offline. The Fraser Institute just released a report saying it's essentially done very little, if anything, to provide air quality in the province of Ontario, that if they'd used cleanup technology that exists, these coal-fired energy plants would be perfectly feasible in 2017. We know that Donald Trump, as President of the United States, will not do away with coal-fired plants. He's returning those that have been taken offline back online. What would you do about that? So the truth is there's a really interesting technology that in, in coal burning and scrubbing that we in Canada 
could use. Instead, Kathleen Wynne and McGinty beforehand shut these down way too early, causing our electrical costs to move up 100% more than it should be. And obviously, it's caused huge economic stress to Canadian families living in Ontario. This is just poor management at play. What scares me even more is all of those McGinty bureaucrats are basically moved into the Trudeau mandate. So I find the same people that bankrupt Ontario hiding under Trudeau in Ottawa. They'll all be fired when I get there. They were the people that signed contracts at 80 cents a kilowatt hour for a commodity that cost two and a half cents. What moron would do that? When I find them, I'll fire them. Can, can you reverse those contracts, the contracts that were signed by the Liberal government uh, of Ontario, which are now causing such hardship to so many Ontarians? My plan was to sit with the new Premier of Ontario and look at them, many of them with Samsung, a giant global company. And I would look at it and say, okay, guys, you want to do more business in Canada, let's review the mistakes of the past. You know these contracts are egregious. Let's talk about the future in the context of the past. That's how you negotiate. Do I think I can help? Yes. I don't want to litigate the contracts. I want cooperation from, com- from companies like Samsung. I'm going to get my hands dirty on that file to help the Canadian people. That's what great leaders do. They manage out of difficulty. They don't just sit there and say, oh, McGinty signed a contract for 30 years at 40 or 80 cents when he should have only paid 3.2. That's Jerry Butts. He did that. These are all the people I will be firing when I get to Ottawa. We're not going to have – where does it say we have to do these stupid things to ourselves? Why? Why, 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 why? We're not going to do that anymore. We're not doing stupid deals anymore. I guarantee the Canadian people no more mediocrity. I want excellence in execution. I want the best men and women in positions to do the work that I give them. Set a target, achieve the goal, or there'll be somebody else doing it. Sounds to me like uh, you and President Donald Trump would have a lot to talk about. We will. You know, that time will come. The only thing I have in common with him is we both work with Mark Burnett. He on The Apprentice, I on Shark Tank. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an immigrant son. There's no walls in my world. People know that. But we have to do business. We have to do business. We are the largest trading partner in 38 states in America. That's a big deal. That's also a lot of leverage. We want to build that XL pipeline. Let's work on that deal. The Americans owe us $3.2 billion that we got shafted going through the Obama dance eight years. I want that back. So there's lots of things to talk about. I'm looking forward to go getting you know, to work when I get there in 2019. First thing I'll be doing is reversing everything Trudeau did. Everything. Everything. Anything he did, I'm reversing it. All right. So there is my interview with Kevin O'Leary, recorded this past Friday, after he announced his candidacy for the Conservative Party of Canada. So the first thing he has to do is when the Conservative leadership And that's going to be a challenge simply because of the logistics that are in place. It's not easy to come in into the race this late and then meet all of the logistical requirements the party has in place, memberships, and you've probably heard and read the stories. So if he becomes the leader of the Conservative Party, then he sets his sights on Justin Trudeau. And then you would have that confrontation between Trudeau, Kevin O'Leary, whoever the NDP decides will be their leader, and perhaps Elizabeth May with the Green Party and one or two others maybe. But I think the, depending on who the NDP elect as their leader, decide will be their leader in 2019, 
the battle people will be staring at will be Trudeau and O'Leary if he wins. Now, who are his primary opponents in the Conservative Party race? There's 14 of them. Names that would probably come immediately to mind. Kelly Leach, Maxim Bernier, Kevin O'Leary, right? I mean, there's many more. There's 14, and I have a list of them here. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So last, uh, I want to share with you how this is all going. And we're trying to get an interview with the, the Prime Minister, Mr. Trudeau. And I've talked to the last six prime ministers, and all with the exception of Jean Chrétien, agreed to do more than one interview with me. We've tried to get Justin Trudeau on the air from the early days when he was party leader to come on with Catherine and Michelle and me and Linda, and uh, I, they, they just hadn't, I was too busy. <laughs> he was almost too busy. So last, um, last weekend... After Mr. Trudeau was quizzed about his Bahamian vacation of the Aga Khan's private island and the use of the Aga Khan's helicopter, private helicopter, which he's not allowed to do by law, and what he says is not a problem, but he's meeting with the ethics commissioner who will let him know if it's a problem. Now, if he runs into trouble with the ethics commissioner, it's a $500 fine maximum. And he'll say something about, oh, I'm just being transparent and I just want Canadians to know it, that it's an open government. And, right, that's why we weren't supposed to know where you were going. Now we know why we weren't supposed to know where he was going because he was using transport that was forbidden by law. What I want to know is who else was there. Were there any politicians from any other country? Were there any climate um, activists? Who else was there? That's what I'd like to know. But anyway, after that dust-up about his trip to the, uh, to the island, Bell Island, the Aga Khan's private island, and the Aga Khan's trying to get, what is it, or has already gotten $50 million out of Canadians for his charitable efforts. I don't mean to be dismissive when I say that. They lobby for the money. He's gotten the money. They do a lot of good. The Aga Khan's foundation does a lot of good. But when there's that kind of money and lobbying going on, what's the prime minister doing going to a private island and then using a helicopter, a private helicopter, that he's not allowed to use by law. It's not a good optic. And then there was the woman, uh, Kathy Cotula from Peterborough, who got up and, and, and tearfully explained her challenging situation that she's, that she's dealing with. Trying to pay her $1,000-plus hydro bill, electricity bill, thanks to Premier Wynne's mistake. Makes about $50,000 a year, has $65 left over for two weeks of living, and she was pleading, Mr. Trudeau, your carbon tax, this isn't fair. And the answer that she got from Justin Trudeau is absolute out-of-date pablum. Guess I'm not helping myself in the effort to get the interview. So we talked about that, and there was a great deal of frustration expressed, and I said, I want to talk to Justin Trudeau. I want to talk to him. And what I'll do, not as an incentive, he he can't do that, but what I'll do is I'll give $1,500 to his favorite charity after he talks to me. And, you know, we do an interview on the air. So several people called or sent emails and said that they they wanted to add $1,500 and and some more money, and we were around five grand. 
So I, I got in touch with the PMO on Tuesday. I, I left a voicemail. Didn't get, didn't get a reply. I uh, left another voicemail on Wednesday. Didn't get a reply. So I'm a persistent guy. I called on Thursday and left a message and said, maybe you wouldn't mind getting in touch with me because I'll just keep calling you, something like that. So I get this email. Good afternoon. Thank you for your email. We did, in fact, receive your first voicemail message and send you an email responding to that effect yesterday morning, email attached. We thank you for your interest in interviewing the Prime Minister. We have taken note of your request and we'll get back to you if something can be arranged. Best regards, Media Relations. This takes me back about 20 years or longer. The first encounter with Brian Mulroney. So I, uh, I called them and I, uh, or, or, I sent, or I sent them an email. And uh, where I got this thing here. So I, uh, I, I said, thank you for your, oh, I, so, so anyway, so I thanked them for the email. And uh, then they got back in touch with me again. Good morning, Roy. Thanks for your voicemail message. Feel free to submit your interview request to this email address, and we'll let you know if an interview would be possible. Best regards, media relations. So it's a little warmer, a little more friendly. And I replied with this. Thank you for your reply and call. This is tedious, doesn't it? Doesn't it this, isn't this tedious? This is what you have to do. This is so boring. Thank you for your reply and call. Your email of yesterday somehow made its way to my junk mail folder. My system is quite enthusiastic about par- parking mail there. FYI, I have interviewed Prime Ministers Clark Campbell, Mulroney, Chrétien, Martin, and Harper. With the exception of Mr. Chrétien, each of the PMs made repeat appearances. I've also said publicly in the event of an interview with Mr. Prime Minister, I'll be glad to make a personal $1,500 contribution to Mr. Trudeau's Canadian charity of choice. This is not intended as a direct inducement for an interview. It is a response to challenging personal stories told on air by Canadians struggling to keep the lights on in their homes, as well as meeting the increasing cost of other fundamental necessities like food and mortgage or rent payment. As the Prime Minister is aware, electricity costs have spiraled dramatically, particularly in Ontario regards. Roy Green. I haven't heard back after that. But they did call. Did I say that? Yeah, they did call. They called me, and they were quite friendly, um, realized what my name was, and, and uh, yeah, yeah th- thank you for that. And, and what we'll do is we'll pass this along. Uh, we'll pass this along to the prime minister's press secretary, and if anything's possible, if it's possible, we'll make it happen. But they were quite friendly when they called. But the first email was such a joke. Good afternoon. Thank you for your email. We did, in fact, receive your first voicemail message and sent you an email responding to that effect yesterday morning. Email attached. We thank you for your interest in interviewing the Prime Minister. We've taken note of your request and we'll get back to you if something can be arranged. Best regards, Media Department. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Somebody on the line I want you to hear. And we'll get to him in just a second. He knows we want to talk to him, so he's, I hope he'll stay. I just want to take some calls quickly first about Justin Trudeau and the Prime Minister, whether you think he will in fact appear on this program or whether he'll steer around us, and whether the email sent represents I sent represents what you think uh, should have been written. Doug, where are you, Doug? Are you there? Yes, sir. How are you, sir? I'm just about special. You're what? I'm just about special. You're special? I am. Wow, I don't doubt it. 
I listened to you talk about Joe Clark, and Joe Clark was the shortest prime minister we've ever had, I do believe. The what? The shortest living prime minister. I mean... You mean in height? In power. Oh, no, no, no. It's Kim Campbell. Okay, whatever. What Joe Clark said when he was out or left Parliament... Yeah. The same thing happened as what he said was going to happen. Uh Uh-huh. Now... No, no, hold on. Hey, hey, Doug. I can hardly hear you, but okay. Well, I can hardly hear you, so we're all right. Listen, Doug. Do you think the Prime Minister will appear, Justin Trudeau, do you think he'll appear on this show? No. Should he? I think he should. Yes, sir, he should. I thank you for the call. Thanks for saying that. Uh, Brian is in Toronto. Hey, Brian, thanks for the call, sir. Afternoon. Of course he won't. No cameras. No cameras. And that's what he wants. He's, he's, like I said before, he's the actor playing the role of Prime Minister, so he's just out there to get on camera and look good. And he doesn't want to get on a radio show where he actually has to answer a question. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like go, I wouldn't let go of a question until he answered it. But all he'll do is recycle campaign phrases, buzzwords, catchphrases, everything else, and then tell us what Canadians expect. I hope you're wrong, Brian. I hope you're wrong. I hope you're wrong. I hope he agrees to do it. All right, thank you, Brian. In Hamilton, let's move down the uh, QEW to Hamilton, Ontario, and Isaac. Yeah, Isaac, thank you for the call, sir. Either. Tell me you just bought a selfie stick, but everything in your email is going to work. But unfortunately, he doesn't like to work, so... You don't think he's going to do it either, huh? He's not going to do it. Six six in succession have done it. He, he'll break the chain, you think? Uh, absolutely. So is it because he hasn't got the knowledge or the courage or the interest? Why? Uh, he might do it at the end of his term, right before he leaves. About it, but then by then it's too late. Yeah, so he'd do it when he needs us, but no, no other time. Yeah, of course. That would be they're the typical gutless. political position, right? Yeah, they're all gutless. Thanks, Isaac. Yeah, have a good day. Yeah, you too. Thanks for the call, sir. Have a great weekend. Well, let, what's left of it now? I want you to listen to somebody. We first spoke to this gentleman. I think it was three weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. And we were talking about the uh, carbon tax in Alberta, and we were talking about cap-and-trade in Ontario and the electricity cost of electricity in Ontario, and we were talking about how people are being hurt, how people are being hurt by what governments put in place and tell us it's for our ultimate good. And they're going to have to charge us more money. We're going to have to pay more money in order to achieve the objectives which will make our lives better and will help the generations to come. Meanwhile, for the next 38 years, we're going to run deficits, which will mean this country will be a trillion and a half dollars in debt. But never mind that. Debt doesn't matter. Not when they can collect taxes. One of our calls was from this gentleman, Ken in Edmonton. And Ken, I've been thinking about you since you called. I've thought about you every day. And I'm glad you called back. And I want you to know, sir, that what you shared with us about what you were facing, there were... Several of your fellow Albertans who contacted me by email and said, please let us know why, how we can get in touch with Ken. We want to go and help him personally. I want you to know that. You there, Ken? Yeah, I am. How are you, Roy? I'm all right, sir. How are you doing? Not bad. You told, when you called us, you told us you had you'd gotten over a heart attack uh, last year. Yes. And... They put three stents in my heart. Three stents, man, oh man. 
And first of all, how are you now? Good. I'm okay. You feeling all right? I have a few friends around me now, and, you know, they're helping, and it's, it's better. Yeah, because what you told us at the time was it was going to be, I remember you saying it was going to be minus 34 that night that you called. When, when you called, you said tonight it's going to be minus 34, and you were living in an RV, and you were, you were getting $850 a month. You were a truck driver, but because of your heart attack, you can't drive truck, of course. So you're getting $850 a month. Nobody gives a damn about you. At least governments don't. Officialdom doesn't. They give you $850 a month. And, uh, and you were very worried because you needed propane to heat your RV. And the po- cost of a bottle of propane had gone up $20 because of Premier Notley's carbon tax. And you didn't have that $20. I've been thinking, of, I've been thinking about that and... And many of our listeners have been thinking about that since then, Ken. How did that night go for you? Uh, it went all right. Uh, I have a little porcelain heater that I use, but that costs electricity, so I try not to use it. Yeah. Has, has anybody come through for you? I suggested you maybe get in touch with the United Way, but has anybody helped you at all? Any, any government agency stepped up to give you any help in the interim? No, not really. Uh, at the end, after the after two or three days, I got uh, I got a check for a hundred dollars in in my account, a direct deposit. Right. And I went and filled up my bottle. And that gave you your the propane you needed. How long does a bottle of propane last to heat your RV? Well, usually if it's not too cold, like not 30, minus 30 every day, it probably lasts about 11 days. So 11 days, so you need at least, you need need at least, how many bottles would you need a month? About two and a half for a month. And they cost 100 bucks each, right? They're $85 to fill them up now. They used to be 65. 85 plus, well, you don't pay a, 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 a consumer, consumer's tax. Sales no. tax in, in Alberta, no. so it's eighty-five dollars, and yeah. that and that extra twenty dollars was the difference between what you could afford for the propane and what you couldn't afford for the propane if you were going to eat and have little light and something else going on in your in your life. Yeah, that's right. That's awful. That's awful because this country, and I'm glad that we help people who are in distress. I'm glad we help people who are in distress globally. But we need to help the people in this country who are in distress. We need to have people like you, Ken, not saying, I can't afford the extra $20 that the carbon tax the premier tells me is good for me. I can't afford the $20 to get myself another propane bottle so I can have heat in my RV for another 11 days. That's not right. It's not fair. Yeah, I agree with you. I I I don't know what to say anymore. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Who's Who's helping you at all? I, I mean, what what agencies? The the eight. I don't want to pry, Ken. So tell me if I I don't want to pry, but is is the is it the provincial government that's helping you? Is it the the city of Edmonton? Is it is it a social services yeah, agency? It, it, it's here in Edmonton. They're helping me. You know, it, it, it's money, but I mean, you know, at this time and, and age, it's not enough, you know. No, you can't live on $850 a month. 
and have to spend uh, $85 three times a month for heat. Yeah. That's not right. Well, I have your phone number. Um, my producer gave it to me. I got it. He got it from you, right? Yeah. So I'm going to call you later. Okay. And uh, are you in Edmonton? Yes, I am. Okay. All right. So um, I'll, call, I'll call you later. Okay. All right, my friend? Uh, somebody may want to reach out and, and, and help you a little bit. I, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be in touch with you. Thank you very much. You take care. See, that, I, I wanted you to hear Ken. Because that's what, um, that's what Premier Notley needs to hear. That's what Premier Wynn needs to hear. This is what, um, so what happens to people who fall through the cracks and are allowed to fall through the cracks. Ken's right. That's not right. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, yesterday, Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau had a conversation about trade and about national security issues. And so the question is, how is the security issue going to play itself out? We have a reality where the prime minister believes that ISIS is a gr- or that climate is a greater threat than ISIS, which is what the um, Obama administration believed, but it's not what Donald Trump believes. Scott Newark is a former Crown attorney, former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, and uh, federal and Ontario security advisor post 9-11, and he served on the board of an anti-terror organization in Washington. And I, I, I wrote it down, the name of the group you were with, Scotty, and I can't find it. What was the name of the, the organization you were part of? The Investigative Project on Terrorism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so here we are, 2017. We have a new American president. We have the prime minister who they won't see eye to eye in, in a lot of things, along a lot of issues. What's the most fundamental concern that you have? What's the most important issue, the most important part of security, North American perimeter security, which was the, you know, which was talked about a great deal in the days of Chrétien and, um, and, uh, and Bush. What's, what's required now? Well, I think uh, the thing to watch for is uh, whether or not the new administration serves as a catalyst to get some of the things done uh, that were in the uh, beyond the border agreement that the uh, Harper government negotiated with uh, President Obama. Because while a lot's been accomplished, there are st- still specific initiatives that were in there. And one of the great strengths of that agreement, Roy, was how specific the detail was about what uh, how success was measured. You know, timelines who had responsibility for it. And as I have sort of watched uh, uh, Donald Trump, uh, and to the extent that one can sort of try and even get a sense of what his priorities will be, it seems like his message includes uh, achieving specific accomplishments, uh, number one. Uh, Number two, in uh, having um, uh, countries that uh, are involved in uh, international efforts, you know, pay their fair share or contribute their fair share, and in prioritizing perceived American interests. And all of the outstanding issues in the Beyond the Border Agreement 
absolutely would um, serve those those goals. So he would be able, if he makes them a priority that President Obama didn't, and so far okay, the uh, the Liberal government has not either. If he makes it a priority, um, we could see some real benefits arising out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as well, too, don't forget. I mean, if for us the larger issue is on the trade uh, component to it. If we help him accomplish some of these things on the security file, they may be a little more receptive to listening to us on the trade file. Right. Where, where and to what and to whom is the, is the Canada-U.S. border most vulnerable? Well, I think probably just when you look at a map and you see the absolute breadth of it, that's one of the greatest challenges. And that's why one of the uh, specifics that was included in the Beyond the Border Agreement was for both countries to jointly, and I can't stress how important that is, Instead of having us do it separately and then trying to figure out how to integrate it, the plan specifically called for a joint vulnerability and gap analysis by Canada and the U.S., which has been accomplished, and then an identification of the required uh, technologies uh, to address some of those issues, which has been accomplished. And then it was supposed to be a joint uh, procurement and deployment strategy and we first heard uh, news of that in 2013 when the RCMP was allocated $92 million for this, and it just hasn't happened. Uh, they renamed it the year afterwards uh, as the Border Integrity Technology Enhancement Program. And I've heard different uh, uh, sort of explanations as to whether it's internal you know, procurement problems in Canada or there's a very real issue of the uh, multiple agency competition uh, and border security in the United States. So if Trump is somebody who wants to say, look, we want to get this done, and I want to be able to you know, deliver something specific, uh, that, in my opinion, is probably the single largest improvement that we could actually make. The, there are other components of the Beyond the Border Agreement. Uh, the Americans have actually already passed legislation authorizing some of these things, the exit entry information uh, agreement, where we're sharing information back and forth with each other. Uh, the pre-border clearance, it took a long time because it's a complicated issue where we're doing clearance in each other's countries jointly away from the border that expedites uh, commercial trade and travel. As I say, the Americans have already passed legislation uh, doing that. Roy, uh, we inter- the Liberal government introduced legislation to do it in June, and it's still stuck in that. No, we're, we're still waiting, right? We're still waiting to get it done at this end. Correct, and I think that may end up being part of what the uh, the American strategy is, is to say, look, you know, we got a whole bunch of things on the table, and we want this stuff getting done, so get this passed. You know, Scott, uh, one of the things that people are, are concerned about is these uh, terror attacks that you're seeing, like in uh, in Berlin and in Nice, um, and in you know in in, in the United All States, over the place. right? So, so I'm curious about this. How much sharing of information exists between Canada and the U.S. on who is entering and leaving each country when that person is not a citizen of either nation? Very good question. Um, there is, uh, to a certain extent, I think that is something uh, that needs to be expanded. Uh, Canada has got uh, two programs uh, underway: uh, the electronic travel authorization, where we're, we a- it's it's in effect like a visa uh, vetting process for countries for people coming from countries that don't require visas, like hello, the European Union. We also have finally CBSA has put in place something called the Advanced Passenger Information Program, where believe it or not. Uh, we never used to check who was on a plane coming to Canada until the plane took off. We're now finally going to do that correctly, and before the plane leaves, we're going to determine who's on there to see if they're inadmissible right. uh, to Canada or not. That is something that the Americans already do. 
And I think what is likely going to happen, and I, to a certain extent I believe it's already underway, um, but I think it will be much more formalized and uh, much more of a priority, which is in effect, I think what you're talking about, it's the creation of that shared bad guy lookout database where we're actually saying, look, at, here are the people that we have concerns about. I mean, people may forget, when we were doing, we admitted the uh, Syrian uh, refugees on an expedited basis, we actually shared the information with the Americans, shared the information on the people we were contemplating receiving with the Americans so they could check it against their databases. I suspect it will start with the Americans, but then probably expand as well, too, which is a good idea. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the five eyes, including the United Kingdom, New Zealand, and Australia. Okay. I expect that will happen as well. Mr. Newark, always good talking to you. Thank you, Scott. Good talking to you, sir. See you. All the best. Scott Newark, very much involved with, um, with international security, North American security, and federal and Ontario security advisor post 9-11. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.